Welcome back to Significant Watches, episode 19. We're back with, first of all, gentleman dealer Eric Wynn, who, if you're following him on Instagram, I believe had more first-round picks than the Duke Blue Devils in last week's NBA draft. Eric, how you doing? <laughs> Good. How about you, Tony? Doing well. Thanks. <laughs> Next up, of course, we've got his colleague, Charlie Dunn, the artist formerly known as Books on Time, now Strictly Vintage Watches on Instagram. Charlie, how you doing? It's good. It's actually St. Rickley Vintage Watches. And uh, yeah, doing great. Just uh, enjoying my uh, AC, which I managed to damage this morning and had a complete, uh, complete freak out about 20 minutes ago. But other than that, perfect. Enjoying the Florida heat, I'm sure, which is something that our friendly resident curmudgeon would certainly appreciate. Gabriel Benador, how are you, sir? I'm okay. I managed to defeat a pair of carbon ceramic brakes this week, so I'm actually pretty uh, happy with myself. However, I have to replace them, so I'm kind of sad. And I think we need to dedicate this episode to our friend at Omega Forms, the Greek physique. And uh, this audio quality is for you. We just uh, updated our audio to the what is it the blue nano uh, microphones courtesy of our friend um giving a recommendation jeremy kirkland from blamo which was a nice little shout out so yeah the blue yeti nano or whatever something like the blue that, yeti sponsored the pod so gabriel is referring to a nice little review we we copped here on omega forums the Greek physique said significant watches led by Eric Wind is a really enjoyable listen, but compared side by side to Hodinki Radio, the difference in production quality quickly becomes apparent. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Fair enough. Sorry. We're all about the content here. We're all about the watches. We could care less about everything else. But we did get new microphones for you and for all the friendly listeners. <laughs> can we just and people, can we just also clarify have- that it's not led by Eric Wind? It's a four way uh, venture right now, right, guys? It, this yeah. is a democracy. This is a bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> Equal partnership amongst the homies. Yeah. All, all mechanical watches are equal in our eyes as long as it's not mecha courts. And uh, we'll be okay. <laughs> well, there you have well, it. Well, with that, it's great to have everyone back on mic. We wanted to start with some auction coverage coming out of the spring auction season from the aforementioned Hodinki. Uh, it was written by Logan Baker, who's become a real a real stalwart uh, covering auctions, I think, attending attending all of them. Eric was quoted in a couple of pieces recapping the spring auction season. The first one that you were quoted in, Eric, was 10 major trends and takeaways from the spring 2022 auction season, where you said that you were predicting kind of an eventual turn back to vintage as the hype in modern watches continues to die down, being quoted as saying. People will consign watches to auction when they think they can do better there than in the private market. But now that a lot of these watches are seeing some downward momentum, we'll probably see a gradual shift back towards vintage. John Reardon, Paul Boutros, others were also quoted in the article. So we wanted to try to have you unpack this quote and others in the article a little bit more and some of your thoughts coming out of the spring auction season. Well, thank you. And I big shout out to Logan. He's uh, really. an amazing writer, really wonderful at synthesizing a lot of information and a lot of trends into something easily digestible. Um, and I just love to read his writing and love to talk with him about the market. So thank you, Logan. Um, I, you know, let's get real about the, the watch market. A lot of these hype watches, you know, which I've, I've, uh, provided a cautionary tale i would say for some time about hype that hype is just hype and not exactly substance but a lot of these pieces are down significantly the last six months since kind of january february was the peak uh some of these watches down over 50 percent value um and uh it you know 5711s are kind of low 100s now after being 200 at the peak with a blue dial. Um, Some of the Tiffany stuff, as we said in episode 18, is down maybe 50% in six months as well. Um, So it is, uh, 
you know, it's it's not a good situation for many modern watch dealers because they own inventory way too high. And like I said, in some cases, the 2x, the actual value. And uh, I was just hearing from someone who knew uh, another gentleman who was getting involved in the watch market. He took out a $10 million line of credit to buy watches, bought a lot of APs in the 500k range that are worth like 300 now open work, ceramics, etc. And he is uh, obviously not going to be doing well. (laughs) So he's got to pay his his line of credit. So uh, that's also the case, I think, with some of the bigger players in the watch market. And we're going to see a lot shake out the next couple months. But um, I certainly am happy to not be sitting on a lot of that stuff. Um, I, I joked with Logan that like the vintage watch market is like the you know like the like the great like steady girlfriend people were chasing the the ig model ig babe but then realized she's not exactly wife material and uh better to find someone who's like steady and gonna be a good mother to your children and all those sorts of things (laughs) so um i think uh that's been the vintage watch market. It's been kind of increasing at a steady clip the last two years, but not nearly the sort of 4X run up we saw on some of these hype pieces in, in less than two years. Um, and now back down. Uh, so I think, um, you know, that's kind of what I was saying. I still see huge demand for great vintage watches in great condition. Um, and I, I don't think that's going anywhere. You know, if you get a really great vintage piece, like the triple crown, hopefully amazing condition, uh, good provenance. And then for some people, they really want the box and papers stuff. Um, then it'll be gone in one text message is what I tell people. Uh, even if you don't have the box and papers, which I, as I have said in the past is a nice cherry on top that shouldn't be the first thing you're looking for when you're buying a vintage watch. And as I've also famously said, going around to dealers and saying you only want to buy things with box and papers is the equivalent of putting a sign on your back that instead of saying, kick me, uh, says rip me off. Uh, so um, those are a few comments, I guess, related to that. Eric, do you feel that that... You know, as a dealer, that these uh, hype watches are coming down in values because they're just too expensive. There's too many of them, or people are just liquidating them for profit. So there's kind of a a flood on the market, uh, given you know what's going on with the you know global economy. It, it, what what do you think is the main driving factor for this? Uh, for sort of the prices coming down, I think it's you know it's never just one factor. I will say the watch manufacturers are pumping out watches like never before is my understanding. Um, My understanding talking to a number of U.S. Rolex retailers is that May was a record month. Uh, Just talking on the Rolex side, Rolex delivered more product than probably any time in their history to retailers in May. You're not going to see this online. You're only hearing it here first on significant watches. But um all these Rolex retailers had record months uh, because they got delivered a ton of product, which obviously then erodes secondary market prices because there's a lot more out there. Second, um, Rolex also told retailers who in many cases were not selling watches and just keeping them in the safe that they better unload their kind of backlog of stuff they were hiding from clients. Uh, so they said they don't like that practice. I've met a lot of retailers that were doing that. I don't know exactly why. Sometimes they would use it to entice someone to buy jewelry. If you buy this, you know, 500k diamond, we'll sell you a steel Daytona kind of thing at retail. Um, definitely that was happening, which Rolex doesn't want to see. Uh, second, you know, waiting for a VIP to come in that they could sell something to or just waiting for inevitable price increases because they could charge more. I've also heard of retailers 
just buying the watches for themselves, essentially swiping the credit card and then keeping it in the in the safe for a while for a year or two. They could sell it then on the secondary market um, or to a VIP or whatever they want to do with it. And obviously when the watches are worth a fraction of you know, the retail price is the fraction of what the uh what the secondary market value is, you know, it's hard for them to sell someone a meteorite Daytona for 39k that's then was worth like 200k a few months back so um you know with the oyster flex strap or whatever so uh yeah all that stuff was happening i think rolex realized it and they said let's just you got to get the product out and end up waiting people's hands and they're producing like never before and uh i think the same is the case with ap and patek I never understood playing paying these kind of crazy retails for current production watches. I can understand it when it's an out of production piece, but you know, paying 8x retail for something when Rolex is still making them, I just I just it just goes it's sort of anathema to what I my value system. So, uh, you know, if I was buying something to keep like that, I just I would rather wait or just not have it, but um, that's uh, that's sort of uh, I think it in a nutshell. And I think obviously cryptocurrencies come down a lot. There are a lot of crypto bros buying hype watches, part of the whole vibe uh, and scene. Um, talking about Palm Beach real estate, there's a lot more properties on the market. I think five times more properties on the market now than six months ago. A lot of people buying real estate were buying against their portfolio and portfolios have come down. So they're getting margin calls on some of the stuff. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a, just a different world. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think in, in, as it pertains to real estate, which is kind of relevant here, it's, you know, the, the 30 years hitting record highs and record increases. So purchasing power is going down and coupled with inflation and you know, plus we have a lot of housing starts. I think it's like something like 39 times or something like that of uh, inventory that's been started that can't be sold. Uh, it trickled down a lot of a lot of big investors have, have very diversified portfolios that include real estate, and that's not moving very quickly now. So we'll definitely see that as a correlation. Eric, yeah, as as someone said too on the real estate front, if you're buying a house for 20 million that you're going to be paying over a million if you are obviously buying it with a mortgage and not cash you're going to be paying over a million just in interest so makes you think a little bit eric you were also quoted in a hodinky article that they ran a few days after the one i just quoted so how are auction houses preparing for a potential economic downturn and i think i want to kind of take some of your quotes there and kind of spin it and ask you how collectors can prepare for a potential economic downturn. Um, you pull out some of your favorite windisms throughout the article, I would say. So one of the first ones, of course, is I have three words for you. Condition, condition, condition. You kind of just mentioned it here, but <laughs> yeah. any great condition watch is going to continue to sell. Rolex, for example, we're, si we're seeing unpolished 34 and 36 millimeter Oyster Perpetuals, date chests, et cetera, going around. I know Charlie's favorite watch is the Oyster or anything with an Oyster case, one of the greatest technological innovations of the past century. Uh, and then you, you yeah. go on to mention vintage Breitling, vintage Zenith, El Primeros, and 135s now, Hoyer, and of course, Volcane Crickets as places to find value. But, you know, of course, we're concerned about auction houses. It's their business and dealers like you too. But what should collectors be looking to do uh, it, as the sort of economic downturn that we've been talking about takes takes full effect? It's I hate sounding like a broken record, but it's just condition, condition, condition. So I think if you're reviewing your collection and um, it's uh, you've got some pieces that are maybe lacking a bit on that front, then. You know, I've heard people say, well, maybe I should wait to sell them. Uh, my opinion is why wait if the watch is not wonderful, it's worth, you know, looking at selling. I don't, you know, also if you have a portfolio of hype pieces, like 
someone asked me about an RM recently, if they should sell it, I said, do you think it's honestly going to be worth more six months from now than it is now? Like, sure, it's worth less than it was six months ago, but is some, they're going to be some like boomerang and it's going to be back where it was like, I don't really see that. So I think now there's no time like the present. Uh, is what I told him. Uh, that's why they call it the present because it's a gift. But, uh, I think, you know, you've got to look at just selling some of the stuff. You know, it's a pat, it's the other windism, the passion versus, uh, investment ratio. You know, there's watches that I'm very passionate about, but I will basically never sell. Um, and, you know, you don't really care if it's worth like 30% less or 50% ma- less or 100% more. I mean, if you're buying it for the right reasons, and that's the reality, I would say, with most vintage collectors that I work with, they're buying it because they love it, not because they care exactly what it's worth. I think Eric's internet just crapped out on him for a second when he was talking about Richard Mill. He's got just as, his internet has just as much of an aversion as he does, but. Like Gabe, no. Charlie, same question to you guys. I mean, as as collectors or buyers of watches, is there are you behaving any differently than you were, say, six months or a year ago? For me personally, no. Uh, I, th- I think things are still very, very expensive in in sort of my world on that. Um, you know, a lot of the indies are are up. Uh, you know, still significant before to before covid at least and you know the interest is still there and production is relatively limited especially when you take it into consideration with uh, larger brands so i don't think the prices in the indie world will come down much if if at all i mean i was just looking at db28 to watch that i've had um they're they're touching you know over 180,000 asking asking price which is uh, you know, unheard of three, four years ago, they were in the 20K range. If, you know, if that, um, if you could even get them to move. Um, but I, you know, I think again, it's, there'll always be buyers for, for great condition vintage watches, as Eric has said. And, you know, I don't need to beat a dead horse on this, but I think it'll be, I, I think it'll be really, that's the place, that's the place to be. Um, you know, it, it, there's great watches on the indie side and on the vintage side. And, you know, vintage kind of took a backseat for the last uh, couple of years to modern hype watches. And hopefully, you know, uh, we won't pay attention to all the different versions of the RM11. And, you know, all of a sudden, uh, a white one is $600,000. None of that anymore. And we can spend uh, reasonable amounts of money and get some good watches and not, you know, um, lose our shirts on it all the time but yeah i mean i think i would just stay away from the hype in general because look i mean they're they're trending down and uh there's a lot of them around you know there's no shortage of 15202 ap royal oaks there's no shortage of 5711s no shortage of uh of rms right now so uh you know barring that i would i think yeah people People are pretty safe if they wait, you know, a little bit until prices start to trickle down a little bit on some of that. But I think on all the, the indie stuff and some really good vintage stuff, I don't think it's going to soften too much. So I, I'm not changing my behavior. Yeah, and one of the one of the things I think also <clears throat> noticing just particularly with vintage the trends of, of someone wanting, you know, the latest, you know, Rolex, there's always going to be a latest Rolex. There's always going to be a new Vacheron that happens to get its moment in time. But I always see that when it's exceptional vintage watches, generally, if you have people that are interested in the same kind of collecting genres as you are, those pieces can move in, especially if you buy them right, or if they have good condition. I mean, I ended up having two of my friends shout out to, um, Max Braun uh, at MRB watches, as well as uh, Marius at Cosmopack on Instagram. Um, two of my watches I ended up getting to basically sell for what I bought them for in the last two months. And it's not like they're really expensive watches. It just happens to be that they're in good condition. And when you have friends that are interested in the same watches as you are, I think specifically with vintage, you don't see people kind of fade out of out of love with certain pieces. and. 
So, I mean, that's kind of my two cents on the matter. I'm just a little bit upset because I just found out all of my hype watches just went down the toilet and um, I just got into buying all of them about last month. So I guess I'm screwed royally on that front. <laughs> Luckily, yeah. I've got two or three good vintage watches so, and a bunch of travel <laughs> clocks as well. That's How's the condition on those travel clocks? <laughs> the travel clocks, I'm aiming for the one that's actually in the background of your uh, screen right there, Gabriel. I'll take that um, as soon as you're ready. And um, yeah, I think that's uh, if I were to recommend anybody, if they you know really want to invest, go for the travel clocks. There's a lot of good brands out there. Atmos is too. Get an Atmos. Yeah. Yep. Do you guys want me to mention this subdial index that was featured in a Bloomberg article recently that we w- that was sent around? Yeah, I mean that was yeah. basically what made me freak out this morning when I you know, <laughs> saw the markets were down and down. sold. I'm screwed. <laughs> okay, so we yeah, wanted man. to mention this subdial index. It was featured in a Bloomberg article the other day. It's an index that purports to track the 50 highest market cap watches. If you scroll through, you'll see a lot of Rolex and then some some Audemars Piguet and technologist type stuff it it illustrates the softening of the market that everyone's been discussing over the past month or so uh here's what the bloomberg article says uh the subdial 50 index which tracks global market prices for the 50 most traded luxury watches by value has declined about six percent in the past 30 days for example a black dial rolex daytona reference etc etc has lost about 10 percent of its value in the past month uh and it goes on and on uh, it, so it's a it's a, just an illustration of the things that we've been talking about. That you know, it, it's interesting to see in, in a graphic form. Uh, is there anything you guys wanted to add that that you thought interesting about the Bloomberg article or scrolling through the subdial index? I think the subdial uh, interface is actually pretty cool to look at. I mean, I'm not it's not particularly my interest, um, but I mean, just as looking at it, like from a design perspective, it's kind of cool to just go through all of the latest Rolexes. I don't know how many um, brands they have. Oh, wow. They've got everything. Yeah. They got Cartier Santos. That's got to be tough, but um, just, yeah. First impressions of it's kind of interesting. I liked the uh, Bloomberg Instagram post that was basically saying that it was the headline that basically watches beat cars and every other category. Um, you know, I think every watch dealer or watch friend had that Instagram post shared with them about 20 times over the weekend, at least. Yeah. It said the, the, basically it showed up platinum Daytona or Platona and said luxury watch returns are beating everything from gold to vintage cars. And that post already has 66,000 likes on Bloomberg business. Uh, so that's nice. But, um, yeah, I think um, the watch market overall is in a much stronger position than it was, you know, two and a half years ago, pre-COVID. Um, <clears throat> you know, maybe this was all engineered by the Swiss watch industry to help watch sales. No, I don't think so. But, um, you know, tons more people that that know me from various things outside of the world of watches are like, why are watches such a good investment? And like, explain the watch thing to me and all that sort of stuff. And I think, uh, there's just so much more awareness about watches than there was pre COVID, uh, and about the watch market that it's, you know, I think it's creating people that are interested in watches for life. So it's, it's very good overall. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think, uh, you know, watches have done well. It's relatively, young market compared to all the other asset classes that are that are mentioned there however i think it's important to to contextualize a little bit for example the car market a lot of cars that haven't come up publicly for sale before period are coming up for sale so people are sort of you know in in certain brackets are, are running away from the mid to lower tier stuff that usually did really well um and they're they're just moving up. For example, the the LaFerrari prototype is going up for sale. The white Enzo, things that we've never seen for sale before publicly. So, uh, you know, if if there's a little extra liquidity, you know, somebody has you know, these things are going to do crazy numbers instead of buying a red run of the mill Enzo. Maybe push a little bit because you know the the white ones going to RM Sotheby's and they finance, so push it a little bit and 
try for the white Enzo. Things things like this that are coming up. Um, the F40, Nigel Mansell's F40 went up for sale last year. Uh, we're seeing, for example, on the motorcycle front, a ton of Steve McQueen motorcycles coming up for sale. Um, some of them not selling, but, you know, all these things. So people can, instead of buying sort of the mid lower tier stuff it's pushing it up so i think that's sort of skewing some of the the market in in certain ways for for collect cars um but i i like i like that you can track sort of the value dropping by the by the minute on on some of these watches it's kind of like a stock ticker for to see you know at what point you know what to offer dealers uh and what to uh you know what to what, what seems to be fair fair market and uh, so that's pretty cool i i honestly just like run-of-the-mill enzo that's what i'm going to start using in the in the future when i see anything that's an exclusive car that was fun but i mean it, it kind of brings up the question is a lot of the sales publicly on these watches i mean they've got to be scraping the you know chrono 24 is only a only a you know a very small portion of the watch trades that are actually going on. I mean, I have these watches being traded from dealer to collector versus from dealer to dealer. I mean, you would imagine that the, the, you know, the data that's shown isn't necessarily as, um, as sketchy as, as, as one could imagine. Right. Because just looking at some of like the dealer chats, you kind of see a little bit of people running around like their hair is on fire with watches at some points. I don't think we mentioned this, but, you know, we saw a record price paid for a car last month as well, the Mercedes, uh, that Mercedes-Benz sold for $143 million, um, which they're using to fund, I guess, some, some educational or a scholarship or charitable fund, charitable foundation, I guess. But, um, that is, you know, that's really great for the car market to see. Whenever you see new numbers being hit like that, it's uh, really wonderful. It's been a few years for the watch market since we've had a number like that. We had the only watch in 2019 go for $31 million at Christie's. Um, before that, obviously, the Paul Newman, Paul Newman in terms of wristwatch 17 million but that's already 2017 and you've got the henry graves junior super complication in 2014 going for 24 million so you know what's the what's the watch that'll be the 50 million dollar watch or higher you know and i don't know uh i was gonna ask you eric of all the watches that you know that are in private hands if you had to make a bet for what's the first hundred million dollar watch and when like five years 10 years and what's the watch i mean i think the john lennon 2499 tiffany easily north of 50 million today the question with that watch with paul newman's watch uh is whether those gentlemen will be as relevant decades in the future uh you know they're they're more relevant to like baby boomers and those that grew up watching them and i think their relevance grows maybe less so every day but uh um both of those are obviously spectacular pieces um but if there was a watch that was it provenance aside if there was one watch that you know of that's in a private collection not not you know not nothing in a in in a museum or whatever that you had to think would be the first hundred million which i mean i think I think the super complication as well, whatever comes up for sale again, easily north of 50 today, easily um, could be a $100 million watch. Um, so, yeah, it's a really important piece. The, the, the pieces that you would imagine would go for north of $100 million. Am I Am I crazy for thinking it either has to be Patek Philippe or Rolex? I mean, those are the only two options, correct? Yeah, I mean, the most complicated watch in the world, the Vacheron 57260, that is in private hands. Um, I think the gentleman paid 
between seven and nine million to have that made kind of over seven years with like seven people working full time on it. Vacheron basically broke even on the endeavor is my understanding. No one really talks about that watch anymore. I mean, it doesn't have the kind of mysticism or mythical aspect of the super complication. Um, Caliber 89s are probably 15, 20 million now. Um, it's crazy because uh, I think it was 2017, the, the yellow Caliber 89 was at Sotheby's Geneva and passed. It was probably one of the most embarrassing passes in in auction house history. I think the bidding started at $5 million. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think those are the pieces, you know, it's, you know, I don't, I don't know if the, if the 6300A that sold for 31 million in 2019, if that came up again, it would probably exceed the 31 million, but how much would it be 35? Would it be 40? I don't know. Um, It'll be interesting, for sure. What about going down lower from 100 million to the 50 million mark? Can we start talking about that so this conversation can continue? <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, this probably isn't 50 million range, how about, but um, just interesting, cool watches that have, um, you know, some sort of history associated with them and their private collection. I mean, can we talk about the. Um, we, I guess preface it by I was having a really fun time swimming in the the pool this weekend with my vintage Rolex watch, uh, freaking out. Eric, you want to you want to transition into the um, the watch that we were talking about earlier on this week? Uh, sure. Well, yeah, it was quite a sight to behold. Charlie Dunn at the Breakers in Palm Beach, rocking his vintage Rolex Oyster Perpetual. Uh, can we, are we allowed to, uh, no way I have two or three that I'm trying to get a hold of. Don't talk about them. It's an oyster (laughs) perpetual. Get out of my life, everyone. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No date, of course. Um, so we never know the date around here at wind vintage. We always have to look at our phones, but, um, uh, the, we, I was just saying, you know, when I thought of the oyster perpetual that, the Mercedes Gleitz Rolex, which I believe Christie sold in 1998 or 1999, is easily one of the most important watches in private hands. If you could probably say it's the most important Rolex in the history of Rolex, because when she crossed the English Channel in 1927, I think she was wearing it around her neck. Um, Rolex, it was a masterstroke for Hans Wilsdorf with advertising, getting it on the cover of the major London newspapers, etc. And um, that is what put Rolex on the map, the oyster case and this whole concept. So uh, I think um, that watch is still in private hands and it is so important historically. It was consigned, I believe, by her daughter. Christie's Rolex previously had it in an exhibition. Um, it's on the Christie's website, but it's a super old auction listing link, and sometimes they delete those old listings from the 90s, so I'm not sure if it's still still up available for public view. But uh, And it didn't even have a photo of it. It just was one of those where it, it didn't show the photo, but described the watch. Luckily, luckily um, you have a garage full of old catalogs that I guess now I'm going to be rummaging through this week looking through the 1998 and 1999 london sales i just pulled it up and i think i found the right one it looks like it's from 2000 would that be right when it sold yes yeah yeah, so you can't find it if you google christie's mercedes gleets oyster everyone it should be the first listing it's kind of an interesting subject though because this is like probably the earliest kind of brand ambassador of i mean the earliest brand ambassador of Rolex, I would imagine, but also kind of the first, you know, real brand ambassador alongside maybe, you know, a few years earlier, probably 15 years earlier, the Santos Dumont kind of story. But I don't know how much of his um, his story was advertised in real time versus, you know, decades beyond. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of an it's 1920s, I believe, was when she um, first crossed. English Channel, yeah, and, 1927, and then um, 
you know, was met with a bunch of, you know, people who were imitating, uh, beating her record or whatever in the following days. And some of them got, um, I guess, uh, ousted as, as lying or what have you. But I mean, she was, she was, this was, you know, a pretty big deal in terms of an athletic achievement and kind of just jumped on it out of nowhere. And, and like you said, put Rolex on the map. I mean, it was pretty much the, the, the biggest um, thing to put them in front of people in, in the press at that point in time. I mean, outside of, outside of that watch, I mean, there's other brand ambassadors that wore important Rolexes, but you think that could be the most expensive Rolex? I don't think it's the most expensive. We're talking about a very small watch and it, it went for 17,000 pounds, uh, June 20th, 2000. Good find Tony. Um, but, uh, it's very small, 31 millimeters by 27 millimeters. It does have a beautiful pink dial, non-luminous hands and dial, and it's worth looking at. The one thing that's kind of <clears throat> interesting is the back is engraved that it's the companion, quote, oyster. I don't know if that meant she had two um, or what exactly that Maybe means. Maybe it was her companion um, on the, uh, on the uh, swim, yeah, that could. Yeah, that's what it means. I mean, tr- as we understand it, that's the watch she had. So, um, and it's uh, engraved October twenty first, nineteen twenty seven, on the back. So I don't think it's the most expensive, but it is insanely important and a very, very special thing. To circle back to a previous conversation that we had about about the uh, the downturn and uh, you know uh, modern watches, do we think that more that modern that these uh, larger brands are going to start doing more custom pieces for clients? I know Tech was starting to try to phase that out. They were still indulging some some clients that were spending north of ten million with them in some uh, some custom pieces, but. Do we think that we're going to see more of that again as as sales potentially decline in in the future? Is that is that something that we're predicting? Or well, the the, the question also is: Do the modern or to the do the conglomerate owned brands have the ability to compete with an offering of something like a bespoke timepiece from a real you know independent watchmaker? And is that a value proposition for someone to buy? A, you know something from them versus an indie. I mean, it probably costs just as much to get something exclusive from a Vacheron Constantine than from a... That's where my mind went to, Charlie. We've seen so many cool independent watches made by, you know, Moritz Grossman and whoever else you want to say. People post them on Instagram and I think it gets more people to to order them. Go ahead. That, uh, that North Korean Summit watch? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no comment. Continue, Tony. Oh my god, Tony, that? you need to you, wait, hold on, hold on. I need I need your reaction on tape. Google it. Google it. Tony, you gotta Google it. Moritz Grossman North Korea Summit Watch. It was a moment. Really don't say that. anything. Don't say anything. Don't ruin it. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm, so I'm so excited. Summit watch. <laughs> da, 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 da. I gotta go on mute for a minute. I'm not getting the right uh I'm not getting the right link. I'm watching the US. I'm getting YouTube videos about a summit between <laughs> Trump and Kim Jong un. So give me a second. You guys talk about whatever. I mean, yeah, so <laughs> I just really want to see Tony. Yeah, I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> uh, so for people that have not seen this watch, it's uh, from Moritz Grossman. It's called the Meet in February special model for the summit meeting between the USA and North Korea. Uh, and it's it's documenting this the meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un uh, with a special edition watch, and it's it's just really a, a work of art. It's got uh, an engraving of of Trump on the left on the dial and um, Kim Jong Un on the right, and the date under it. And I'm gonna read the description I, here for I a actually, minute, but you know, usually I know people don't click click on show notes or whatever, but you've got to click on this one. It's well, it's got a. Retail price of about thirteen thousand four hundred. It was a unique piece. I actually want to see if they still have it because I think this is like a 
It was like a Hodinkee travel clock. I, uh, so. Yeah, right, because it didn't happen. <laughs> right, it didn't happen. Um, it was, this was actually at Cellini in New York, and I actually saw it in person. It was great. And and they hadn't sold it, and this was after the date for the summit, which never happened, or they moved the date. I, I can't remember what happened now, but it it was it was amazing. It was like this whole watch, and it was being hyped up you know, as a thing, and then it didn't happen. So the date, because there's a date on it, Totally missed. Look, I wonder what happened to the look. Political views aside, if there was one dial to adorn two men's face on it, I would definitely have to go with Kim Jong Un and Donald Trump. Personally, I would go with enamel rather than an engraved uh, effigy of them both. Um, Almost smooching, but what can I say? Yeah, it's a crazy watch. So, I guess independence—the value prop versus uh, getting something bespoke from a. Major conglomerate. Where do we go from there, guys? Where, where can you oh, go? Yeah, I think the going back the the idea of luxury, I think, is something that isn't like a Louis Vuitton brown bag is not like luxury to me. There's like a how many millions of those do you think exist in the world? <laughs> like the whole point is that. Luxury is like something that no one else has exactly, or that's very rare and special. And you don't go into a restaurant and 50 other people have the exact same thing, which is honestly something I've had that conversation with modern watch collectors who are transitioning to vintage. They say, you know, I go to dinner with the watch enthusiasts of New York. I think they call them weenies for short or something. And like, half of the people will be wearing the exact same watch at a given dinner. And then you say, this isn't rare. Like this is supposed to be a rare watch. Like there's 10 people at the table wearing the exact same watch. So um, yeah, that's why I believe more in this kind of, that's part of why independence have taken off. I mean, uh, people that have been around this for a while, you know, I can't tell you how many people I, I know that have said I'll never wear a fifty-seven eleven again. They've gotten too hyped. Like it's become more than just like a nautilus with the history of Genta and everything else. It's just a symbol of money. It's like a gold brick on your wrist, and that's not what I want to convey to the world about who I am. Uh, so I think that's that's luxury. Cartier's doing a great job with their custom program with custom crashes and some trays. Um, they're being very, uh, I would say open about custom designing these for a variety of people, which is cool. Um, and I think more brands will start doing that. It's obviously preferable from a workflow standpoint to just pump out a lot of stuff and just throw it out there and let people buy it in a feeding frenzy and not have to, work and spend hours going back and forth with a client to custom design something and get it approved and make a one-off dial and all this sort of stuff. Um, Obviously from a workflow perspective, it's better to just mass produce something, but that's not really luxury. And uh, Eric, just, you know, to to keep beating this to death, um, what what kind of uh, where are you pointing people in what direction other than really excellent condition uh, vintage stuff? Any anything that you think is on the uptrend um, that that ha- you know that's still kind of relatively on the lower end of the of the price spectrum that you think has a nice future that somebody who wants to uh, you know who comes to you and says hey I, I don't want to lose my shirt potentially I, I just you know, kind of store value. Additionally, I want to wear something cool. Is there is there a specific place that you try to uh, steer them towards when they say, you know, not a particular brand that they don't come to you and say, I need a Rolex or a Patek or, or you know, a specific complication? Uh, where do, where do you I say think uh, I think Moritz Grossman, particularly Summit watches, first of all. Um, second, <laughs> you'll never, just like you'll hopefully you know, cross our hearts and hope to die. Never hear us have a wrist check on <laughs> significant watches. I hopefully will never hear the words, just buy what you love and nothing else matters. <laughs> I mean, of course, that's the most axiomatic thing you can say in the world of watches. But I I think 
you know, the reality is there is a little bit of a cosplay element to watches and who you're trying to pretend to be. So some people love aviation watches or the space program and everything else. And they're naturally geared toward speedmasters and nav timers, other people toward car racing and they want Daytonas and, um, you know, and a car Sherpa graphs or things like that. Um, so I, I think it actually comes down to shapes a little bit. There's a lot of people that like rectangular shapes, going back to our discussion of Brock and company. Um, they like Cartier tanks and what that conveys about themselves, and like they like that look on their wrist. And then there's people that like round watches. Obviously, there's more people that prefer that, just like there's more right-handed people in the world than left-handed. Uh, but... Um, you know, obviously the largest group of of luxury watch buyers are interested in Rolex, so that's always a good place to start. Charlie just got his first Rolex. Um, he said that basically before he began working for, for me, he never envisioned himself buying a Rolex. <laughs> and then he, you can comment, I mean, Charlie. Literally, I'll, I'll put it like this. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, more satisfying than wearing a vintage Rolex in the pool on a hot summer day at the breakers <laughs> and knowing that it's hermetically sealed. And you can walk around sweating it, jump in the pool. I mean, there is literally nothing. I thought you were going to say uh, playing golf at the Mar-a-Lago there for a second. I've never played golf in my life. <laughs> the only thing I aspire to do is swim in vintage Rolexes these days. <laughs> I once tried to play golf with a car there at the Cavalino Classic. It didn't go very well. Oh, no. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so he said, you know, they were boring to him uh, at first, and now he's grown to love them for uh, Charlie Dunn. But, um you know, if you're interested in, as I, as someone who's trained in uh, special operations knows, whenever you enter a room, you automatically identify the exits. When you buy a watch, you should automatically identify the exits. And maybe for a custom summit, Moritz Grossman, there won't be many exits outside of auction or eBay. <laughs> but for a Rolex, there's a lot of exits. Uh, and and egress points. So uh, I think um, if you honestly think you're going to sell the watch, you need to think about the market for something. I can't tell you. I mean, one of my favorite stories, actually, I don't think I've told this, but when I was at Christie's, someone came to us with a Louis Moynet custom watch. Oh, God. Uh, that was called the Mars watch. And he spent $2 million on this watch. And they had created a custom web page about the watch, which I tried to find online recently because it's been like six years since this all transpired. And he said, what would you give me as an auction estimate? He had just taken delivery of it. And I think the gentleman was basically looking for a pat on the back about what a smart move he made. Uh, but instead, when he asked for an auction estimate, I had uh, my friend Brandon Frazen uh, who worked with me at Christie's, he's now at Bob's Watches, uh, convey the news that we would be open to giving him a $50,000 low estimate in reserve, but we weren't certain it would sell, but we were willing to take the chance. Ouch. <laughs> and, uh, oh, my um, so, oh, my God. Uh, you know, that... <laughs> <laughs> that was uh that was one of those moments that kind of stuck with me one of many but um yeah i think that there's not many uh buyers for that watch on the secondary market. i mean there's only two people who buy louis monet and one of them was benjamin franklin and the other guy got taken for two million <laughs> yeah and i was gonna say everybody who's under sanction at the moment <laughs> <laughs> so uh you didn't take a consignment eric uh he didn't consign <laughs> it i heard a i heard a scream in the distance uh when i was at rockefeller plaza uh 
about five seconds after the email, we clicked send. I don't know where it was coming from exactly, but um, yeah, that was, I don't know where that watch is going. <laughs> Might go to the mo- to Mars. You never know on the next <laughs> yeah, rover. Yeah, exactly. That's the only hope to, to get its value. Rid the world of this watch, yeah. You'll see it in a few in a few years in the Monet collection, uh, curated by yeah. by prominent yeah. auction house. Yep. Um, I also joke with people sometimes if they bought something, you know, terrible or at way too high a price. I say, man, that is going to look really nice in your casket with you one day. <laughs> You can't take it with you, Eric. <laughs> you can't. You can just hope it's like the pharaohs and it'll be with you for a while until someone digs it up. People will be robbing our uh, our graves for for unique custom Louis Mon- Monet's one day, I think. Monet. By, by the way, we have a client here at Win Vintage whose father bought a Hoyer Monaco 1133B blue dial vintage like Steve McQueen wore. Um, and uh in Le Mans and the when he passed away in the 1980s there were two or three kids he our client was one of them and no one wanted the watch because it was seen as such a hideous thing uh and like oh it was dad's watch no one wanted it so <clears throat> he's buried in a New York cemetery wearing his Hoyer Monaco 1133B uh unfortunately Jeff Stein, that information is not uh, something we can disclose. <laughs> we'll send you the address, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, it might be on findagrave.com or something, like where you find grave markers. Oh, man. Is there anything else you guys want to hit on? No. I think it was a very robust and wonderful discussion. Uh, so if uh, for those listening at home, if you have more ideas about a variety of topics. We have a good group of topics to discuss, including the wonders of the Rolex Oyster case, according to Charlie Dunn. Uh, so we look forward to any any topics you might have, vintage bracelets, etc. Email us your Louis Monet watches if you need if you need money. <laughs> I want to hear about everyone's like terrible custom watches. That that would be a fun episode if anybody wants to, uh, you know, send us their pictures or of watches that they know of that are terrible custom <laughs> watches. You know, one offs or like we we need to do an episode about like the worst watches ever made. You know, you like do you remember do those Zenith Defy Gravity things? Do you remember those? Oh, what, they gravity defying watches. They had like these these uh, gyre. They they were these yes, torbs yeah. inside of these balls that were that were like I don't know anti gravity. Like, it was the craziest thing. But there's a lot. That's crap gross. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> uh, for some reason, I've been offered a couple of Louis Moynet Derrick tourbillons recently, which is like an oil Derrick on the dial. <laughs> so it's like digging up oil. <laughs> And the thing's spinning. And uh, there was, I believe, one for sale at Watchbox for a while. And everyone kept quoting that price as like the, the price for it. I was like, dude, you're lucky to get a third of that. Uh, so it was pretty. I don't know. I don't want to see that watch again, personally. Ew. <laughs> Just give me my, uh, my, in, my, you know, custom Air King dials with, with, uh, company logo oil company logos or something i don't need an actual yeah, oil drill, you know it would be sick yeah, if exactly. daniel day lewis was rocking that um that watch though i can't lie That'd yeah cool. there will be blood <laughs> that's good um that's it well thank you so much for listening to episode 19 of significant watches and we look forward to hearing you here uh having you here with our next episode thanks mm-hmm.